Hello and welcome to another installment of BC Museum Portraits. I'm BC Museum Portraits Project Manager, Spencer Stewart. In this episode, we'll be speaking with Cortez Island Museum and Archives board member, Bonnie McDonald, archivist, Jill Milton, curator of Wild Cortez, Laurel Bohart, and managing director of the Cortez Island Museum and Archives, Melanie Boyle. Thank you all for sitting down to talk about the Cortez Island Museum and Archives. We'll go around the table and, and you can introduce yourself and how you got involved with the museum in the first place. I'm Bonnie and uh, way back, about uh, maybe 28 or 30 years ago, I went to the library which is down in the community centre and there was the librarian May Ellingson, who the archives is named after. And she had this amazing binder of photographs of people and things happening on the island and she had them in a binder and we looked through them and I was pretty inspired by the collection that she had done collecting them with other people from islanders. Then we, I kept visiting her and she's a, really a wonderful person and great to be around and talk about history of the island and then we started meeting up down in the Manson's Landing proper at a person called Ian Disney's home. Mm. And it was this beautiful little cabin right on the water. And two or three of us met there every couple of weeks and talked about island gossip and showed photographs that everybody had. And we just started fantasizing about making a museum here on the island where these things could be shown. And after a couple of years, the, the Parks Board decided to not have any concessions in the park that's down there at Manson's Landing. There used to be a store used to sell groceries, that store, right on the dock. And they offered it to us after we'd inquired that if we moved it, they would give us $1,000 to help move it, and we could renovate it and turn it into a museum. With a lot of community help, Ellingson and even my husband and lots of people, um, got this thing up on wheels and brought it up here, the fire hall people. Mm -hmm donated this piece of land we could put it on. It was just bare dirt and gravel. It was horrible. But sure enough, we had a person that was into gardening. She got the garden going, we got the fence going, and then for about a year and a half, renovated the whole interior, changed the aspects. We opened in the year of the oceans, 1998, with mm -hmm. an exhibit on Manson's Landing. Uh, I've been involved ever since. Yeah. <laughs> so that's me. How about you, Laurel? I came here in 2005 because Tom wanted to show me Cortez, where he lived for a long time. And he knew all the islands. When I met him, he was on Quadra. And I had never seen Cortez. We came here on this very long ferry trip. I couldn't believe how beautiful it was. Like, here, I want to live here. We went around and found a house and sold what we had in Nanaimo and came here. But my background is taxidermy, but I have several degrees in zoology and I have a major in museum science and minor in ornithology. And when the then president, Lynn Jordan, I think it was her, she's always asking people where they came from and what they did. She got me like that. <laughs> <laughs> she had me right here at the board. She said, would you like to put some natural history in this museum? We did the first Cortez exhibit eventually and we had the birds what were they uh, called the, the, the first one was before? raven's relations that's central now in wild cortez 
and we have one wall that shows the water cycle and all related animals and birds. It's about 200, I think maybe, and a number of study skins, which is the basis of a natural history collection. Hmm. We're working on those now. We also have a partnership wall, and we're partnered with Friends of Cortez Island Ecological Group. This is Wild Cortez. This is Wild Cortez, mm -hmm. not this venue here. The museum is in two venues. This one, which is people history mostly, and some natural history in the Wild Cortez, is the ecological and natural history component. Okay. We have some organizations we work with, and a couple of researchers like Christian Grinnell, who's been, does the fossils and bats, and uh, Sabina Menz, who's this wild, fantastic Antarctic researcher, <laughs> and is concentrating mostly on eelgrass and uh, marine environment, things like that. We have a conflict between people who want the trees down and made into lumber or whatever, and people who would prefer to see them standing, because if we don't do that, as we all know, we have massive environmental degradation going on. We're focusing more on that and how it affects creatures mm. and people. Jill, how, how did you get involved with the museum and the archives? There was a woman, Doreen Thompson, who made that map on the wall that we were looking at. And she was a friend. She was quite involved in the museum. And I think it was in... 1999, there was an exhibit on the history of Whale Town, Windows on Whale Town. Doreen basically roped me into helping her do the research for that. I found it really fascinating. Doreen had an ATV and she used to go out on all those old trails and I'd go along for the ride and she'd be like, oh, this was Caferata's homestead and this happened at this place. and. At the same time, I was the literary executor for a local author, Ghislaine Douglas, and her collection was our first and probably just about our biggest collection also. I was confronted with a whole house worth of documents, papers, writings, photographs, all unsorted, some of it just in big black plastic garbage bags. And it was going down to UBC Special Collections. And I feel like when George Brandak, who was the head of it then, saw it, he was like, can't deal with this. It has to be organized before it comes down to UBC. He sent me this photocopy manual of arranging and sorting. And that was my introduction to archives. I went through all of the papers. It took years and it took over my entire weaving studio but I found I really liked it it was fun to create order from chaos it was very satisfying and having everything corralled in its nice archival folders and boxes it's satisfying when it started out it's just a heap of stuff and I love looking at the original documents and Ghislaine Douglas was also very active in community affairs here. She had ended up with minutes from the Women's Institute, for instance, going back to 1921 and the Women's Auxiliary of the Anglican Church and just a whole bunch of community organizations. She was also the regional director, a lot of papers from that. When I looked at them, I 
thought this can't all go down to UBC because it's going to be most valuable out here. This is where people are going to want to be using it and finding answers to questions. Mm -hmm. George Brandak agreed that the material relating to Cortez could stay up here. Ghislaine's life is in two places now, 1900 to 1948, down at UBC Special Collections, and 1948 to 1993 is up here. We had a training program early on. Somebody came and showed us how to process archival materials and... Melanie, yourself. I'm the most junior member. I just started here, really in, I think, officially June of this year. I've been coming to the museum for a long time. Every time I visited here and since I've been a full-time resident, um, and I've always just really appreciated the scope of the museum, the energy. And, and since working here now, I, what I've come to really appreciate is the collaborative nature of the organization. It's one thing to look from outside in, but when you're inside, looking out, you realize all, these, all the skill that people bring. And I think that's what's really special about Cortez. People have previous lives. There's a lot of untapped resources here, knowledge and generosity of community members who are willing to step forward and either serve on the board here or just design a show and I think what I've really enjoyed in the short time I've been here is making those connections. My role technically is managing director slash curator but I what I like is being able to connect all the people and facilitate more than anything all the potential that's here. How did you early days reach out to the community get, raise awareness of, of the museum? What was that process like? The first thing we did once we had the building up here and had started on it was we had a great big community meeting down at Manson's Landing Hall, a big open meeting. And we had like questions that you could fill out. We had big long discussions about what people would like to see in a museum. What, what, do, you, what do you want to know? What do you want to see? How do you want it to go? We had all of these questions and we have them written down. <clears throat> We've included a lot of them in our mandate what people want and then that began a series of show what what people wanted to see what they wanted us to collect mm -hmm. things like that and that's how we started out just trying to follow what the community wanted mm -hmm. and they wanted a place that wasn't just uh, static they wanted it to change mm -hmm. our goal is to at least every other year and usually every year we change our exhibits and our focus outside there. Community curators come in and help, or they might design the whole exhibit. Mm. It's what makes it interesting to work here, too, because it's not just the same old thing year after year after year. We try to really excite ourselves in doing new things. When we did the windows on Whaletown, we had a big dinner and party over near Whaletown in, in their community hall. And we invited people who used to live here to come, they had a wonderful party. Yeah, we collected a lot of stories. Doreen was corresponding with a lot of old friends, basically, people that she'd grown up with here on the island and knew the families. She reached out and got photographs and stories and interviewed people, made tapes. It was really a great opportunity for gathering information. And then the party was really great. It was like a huge reunion of people that hadn't seen each other for a long time. Prior to the extension, where, where did you hold the collections that were not out in display? Well, there weren't many by that, 
then mm -hmm. because we just started. Right. And May's photographs were in an album. We had that album of her photographs. And then once Jill got involved and, and once Doreen got involved, more stories and photos came. Mm -hmm. And then I think people started realizing that they could donate their records. Mm -hmm. Different community groups then got the idea. It's really hard to maintain momentum when it's all volunteers because everybody yeah. has their life and their projects at home that they're doing. And the archives was in the same position. And then Donna and I applied for a grant from Library and Archives Canada, and we got it, and that really allowed us to focus and get the Glenn Douglas collection finally arranged and described. And we've had two grants since then, and each one is just a huge step forward with being able to organize more material, mm -hmm. because I think without those, there would just still be a lot that was really unprocessed. Yeah. During that process, once the word started to spread in the community about the museum, were there some collections or items that came to the fore that, that surprised you about your understanding of the island prior to that point? There's always talk, talk a lot on the island amongst each other. I think the most surprising part to me who live in, in Manson's Landing was were the items that came from Whaletown, like we have this really weird bed that was on one of the Columbia Coast Mission boats and it was in it was on the wall and then part of it folded down it was metal it was about a half about three quarters the size like maybe five or six feet long and but it was important because it came from the Columbia Coast Mission boat and we didn't really quite know what to do with it because you couldn't really hardly even store it even now, it would be awkward. We have it in storage at somebody else's place, which we've had to use that a few times for big items. And what we're thinking of doing is making it an outdoor that people could maybe sit on it or even look at it outside. Yeah. And it's sort of been in the works for about three years. <laughs> we were gifted a collection of indigenous artifacts by a woman who lived near the beach down in Smelt Bay where the people from Powell River, the Slyaman indigenous people, they use that area a lot. This woman made a huge collection, we think it's pretty huge, of just simple tools and malls and points and things like that. She collected them for years and years down there. They were just lying around and they were in her garden. She'd dig them all up. She donated all of those to us and I was surprised when I saw the number of artifacts that she'd got just in her backyard, basically. Mm. Those are, uh, we had a case made for them, and for quite a while we were displaying them in the case. But since we've learned more about um, reconciliation, we've removed the case from public display, and we're in the process of speaking with Clahoos First Nation about potential repatriation whenever they're ready. Mm. The depth of it was surprising to me. I think one of the more surprising things and intriguing things I found was in Glenn Douglas's papers, the old minutes and correspondence of the Whaletown Women's Institute. And there was a series of letters in there about post offices from the 1920s and 30s, whereas the Manson's Landing Post Office used to be known as the Cortez Island Post Office. 
and then there was the Whale Town Post Office and also Seafruit and Squirrel Cove. But anytime a letter was sent to Whale Town and it had Whale Town Cortez Island on it, it went to Manson's Landing. And then it had to go all the way back to Vancouver and come all the way back up to Whale Town. And there was an ongoing initiative in Whale Town to try to get Manson's Landing to change the name of their post office to from Cortez Island to Manson's Landing. And the people in Manson's Landing refused to do that. So there, was, there was this whole... And when I first moved here, I was told, oh, those people in Manson's Landing, they're terrible people, don't go over there. There's been long-term, a bit of a rivalry. And it was really interesting and surprising to, to see, like in 1920, this relationship between the communities was not all smooth sailing all the time. <laughs> but there were no roads or anything that you could just drive it along back yeah. over to Manson's or back yeah. to Whaletown. Like everything had to go out and come back and be delivered by boat. And the mail took a long time. And yeah. even if you wanted to invite someone to something, basically back then you had to send a letter. Yeah. And that letter would go down to Vancouver and then hopefully, yeah. luckily, it would go to Whaletown. And it was quite the place to live. How do you go about building exhibitions and how has that changed throughout the life of, of the museum? Usually if what happened, especially in the early days, was a board member would have an interest in something. They'd heard something or they knew something. There was somebody with a deep interest in something and then they would go about researching it or coming up with artifacts, coming up with a plan. And, and then just going for it. None of us were curators or anything like that. We were just volunteers. And then once we started applying for grants, then we realized that we had to be a little bit more uh, organized and thoughtful about what we were going to do. We maybe had to bring in other people to help that were, had more ability. And then we still would have the idea, but then we would maybe go to somebody. Mm. One example was Judith Williams is quite a known artist and author. She had a real deep interest in Butte Inlet and what was going on at Butte at the time when they may be doing through run of the river power up there. Mm. She came up with an exhibit idea mm. of doing Butte. She had photographs, she had items and she researched it and we gave her full go and we got a grant for that. We got a grant from the Vancouver Foundation from that, for that one. It turned out to be beautiful and amazing that the Campbell River Museum borrowed it. Then after that we wanted to do something about um, Manson's Landing. Then Lynn Jordan, who was our president then, was really keen on Manson's Landing. She did all kinds of research and got people to make things, make maps, do all kinds of stuff. That's just how it continues. Mm -hmm. Melanie could talk a little bit more about our more current ideas. We're shifting towards content that relates not only to the issues here on the island, but connect us, our little island, with other larger issues. This example that we've had, we're fortunate to get with the suitcase project, was just was really wonderful. It generated a lot of interest, local interest in history. That connection of local history and content with other communities or on a larger scale. So the exhibition that we're, we're developing will bring out maps in our collection, 3D maps as well as the documents, and explore not only the, what we have in our collection, but 
ideas of place and how we move through the landscape. Not only we have artifacts and documents and archival material, but engage our community in a larger sense on identity and how we connect with one another, but also in this land, because the island identity is very strong. And I'm new here, but the, that relation to both the water, the natural beauty, and the people who come here, there's a particular person who mm. finds themselves here and settles here. And that has been really interesting. So there's programming to engage all the different generations on the island and recognize that we need to reach out more for diversity and different identities on the island and uh, through programming and speaking series. It's multi multifaceted. We've connected a lot with the regional museums. And that's something that I would really love to support further. But the direction is coming from the board and that wish to really remain such an in integral part of the community, but recognizing that the demographic has changed too mm -hmm. and that we need to keep keep working to reflect those interests. The yeah. process of digitizing the photograph collections, how has that changed the connection with communities off the island? Digitizing the tapes and the photographs and then having a website where they're available online yeah. has really broadened the accessibility of our collections. A lot of people that have family connections or used to live here have accessed the collection online and in some cases they've sent in stories to augment our knowledge about certain photographs. They've sent photographs because they realize now that we're collecting them and it's a good place for their family photos. And there's been a lot more research requests because people have realized that we have information on certain topics. It really broadened our connection to off the island and also internally because the program that we use, the database, I find it really easy to use and useful, but I think nobody else really did, even the other member of the archives committee. Now that it's all online, people can just look up things very easily. Even for use within the organization, it's it's really made the archives a lot more usable and accessible. Mm. And Wild Cortez, its relationship to the museum and the island, how did that organization come to be and, and how has that developed over the years? It came to be because people asked for an expansion of the first exhibit. We made the first expansion here and then it went into storage because the museum board decided that obviously it's taking up too much space and it was in storage for a while and then people asked about it where are the birds where are the, where are the stuffed animals where do you put them and we realized there was enough interest we got a big grant in 2017 with the donations we keep wild cortez going we've had a few more grants we were able to put in more exhibits and it's at Linnea Education Center downstairs in the old library of what used to be the Montessori School. And it's actually part of an old World War II Quonset hut. That whole area has a lot of history. And uh, people ask me about that. We talk about the history of the area as is the animals. But nowadays, with the interest in ecology, we have one partnership wall, and we do new exhibits on that every year now. And that way we keep current. And maybe this year we'll be talking about bats again and white nose syndrome and how things are, how bats are having difficulties in the east of the country and now probably coming to here. 
we had a small exhibit on nighthawks because their migration routes aren't very known. Mm. And it was just the last few years that they just, the researchers have discovered where they migrate to and how many there are. That starts conversations about what can we do in our area? How can we stop degradation of the environment? How can we protect, say, this little creek running through the property? Things like that. And all these small things add up to a very large amount of work that is being done with people. It may be very low key, but if we all keep doing our little projects, we're going to have a lot more success. Mm. People need to see that this is their backyard. This is happening here. I mean, what are we going to do about lack of water? Literally, at my place, we have a hole in the local creek we're getting water from. Mm. But to me, the ecology and the environment is the absolute most important thing we could possibly focus on mm. because that's the underpinning of the entire structure. Mm. Without it, I feel that the museum has a double mandate. What are some other events, ideas going on on the island that you have an eye to in terms of how they're maybe enriching the story of Cortez Island? One current thing that's really important here right now is housing. Small families, large families, and can't afford to live here. And not only that, even if they could, there's nowhere for them. Mm -hmm. We have this whole same thing uh, everywhere across Canada where people now who are living here with a, a home and maybe have a basement suite to rent out, they need that income in the summer. That's their income. And there's no permanent housing for people. They rent it out as a B&B. Uh, because they make a lot more money than if they just rented it out as a as a basement suite. So this is a big item on our island that mm -hmm. we're going to be maybe talking about in an upcoming exhibit about how float houses came and how it all came that people settled here and mm -hmm. what the housing was like. Mm -hmm. Right now there's a, a very important initiative going on to add housing to our already existing seniors housing. Well, that's big and uh, that's one issue that is definitely coming up. However, reconciliation and relationships with Indigenous people is important now and there have been ongoing initiatives on the island not necessarily related to the museum, but I feel like the Clahoos First Nation is really stepping out more now and like this museum as far as the social history goes and our artifacts and archives are pretty much settler based. We are lacking that deep indigenous history here. The way it isn't our story to tell, it's their story to tell in the way they want it, but it's something that we'd really like to help bring to the fore and just have as, like a lot of people want that knowledge and our really wanting that connection. We are a tourist information booth, and I've noticed in the short time I've been here, many people ask about Indigenous culture and who, what is the presence here on the island, and I would love to see more of that. Five years, ten years out, where do you see the Cortez Island Museum? What do you see as some goals to achieve or ideals to, to reach for? It would be great if we had more money, sorry, <laughs> because one of the things that we spend a lot of time doing and that's really a struggle for 
several of us is grant writing, trying to year after year apply for grants that you've already told them everything, but you have to reiterate that over and over again to get enough funding to say get Melanie's position or sometimes you get a special one to do an, an exhibit which is different. But just to keep the doors open, it's really hard. You go through the same thing, you have to do these huge budgets, then you have to repeat the information in the budget in mm -hmm. some other form. They ask you questions over and over, the same question in a different way, and you have to try to make it exciting or interesting. If I saw in the future, I'd see where we don't have to spend hours and hours and actually weeks writing grants, yeah. do things that are really good for the community and in a lot of ways good for the province. We're collecting and saving all of this stuff. It should just be a given. I'd like to see more upgrading of lights. We need locks put in. We've all kinds of things that need to be done. But with only like five, six hundred dollars in a year, it, just, it doesn't go very far, mm -hmm. especially with prices rising all the time. Mm -hmm. It would be wonderful if we had ongoing funding. We didn't have to keep applying all the time, every year, because they're making exactly the same points every year and neither being sure we're going to get the grant. And what happens if we don't? Do we have to close the doors? Because the rent is 100 a month. We've made that out of donations this year. In fact, we got more than 1,500 now, which is the first year that's happened. That's because things are dynamic, and we have people down there who are interpreting, and, and then we're telling them to go to all these other venues and look, and including other museums. But steady funding is the key to survival for small islands and small island museums. We all contribute a lot anyway, because we're interested. Yes, stable funding would be nice. We could always ask for taxes and get into a huge kerfuffle about that. A lot of the things we do now require more money than the things we did in the past. For instance, the online archives is a couple thousand dollars a year to keep it online and accessible. And I think that's such a good way of expanding access and making our collections usable that I really would hate to see that come to an end. Mm -hmm. A lot of the reason this organization is vibrant is because of the volunteer mm -hmm. energy and enthusiasm. You start out with, a, we called it a dream, Maya Langson's dream of what, of what might be here and we did it all ourselves. Yeah. We didn't have grants or anything, we just yeah. did it with the volunteers. Once you start getting grants and realizing that you have potential to employ people, that the volunteers aren't too burned out, you have a potential to put on special exhibits because you can hire a curator or something like that or you get a grant to like Jill when she, they got these grants to do all all the accessioning in the in the archives I mean it pushed us forward sometimes I think suppose we didn't have any money suppose it came to that that the, all the wells dried up what would this place be like yeah. what would we do I think we would just continue on to put events on for the community using volunteers, trying to get donations just to keep the lights on and, and the doors open, which is how we were at the beginning, and just go back to doing our own little things out there, like Nancy Kendall 
and Jane Newman, our previous managing director, did the whole exhibit about bees, a volunteer. And they did all that research and put that whole exhibit up about bees. We could continue doing that thing. Going forward five years, mm -hmm. if I looked into the, the future that way, is having more like younger people step forward from the community to be part of the organization. And I think to shadow all the knowledge and step forward and we acknowledge that it's very difficult for people in the raising families here, they're just trying to have a place to live, to volunteer their time. But somewhere in that transition and also bringing younger generation of diverse interests through the doors, it's a combination of doing many things at once, reaching our community, mounting exhibitions and programming that speaks to their interests so they can come through and see what we do here. A lot of people say recently they haven't been through and I don't know why and we're figuring that piece out. And also I would say a new website which would be again speaks to accessibility. We've noticed that of course with COVID and the, the limitations on, on actual physical presence but reaching um, different demographic and different population outside of the actual physical parameters of the museum are, are important. Thank you all for Thank sitting you. down and speaking <laughs> Thank with you. Thank you for the long This has been another BC Museum Portrait. BC Museum Portraits is done in partnership with the BC Museum Association. To hear more portraits and view the accompanying images made by project photographer Taiyu Hayward, please go to museum.bc.ca. Thank you very much for listening.